1: Hello and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we will be talking with George Perkovich and Ariel Levite about their new book, Understanding Cyber Conflict, 14 Analogies. George and Ellie, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: You go first, Ellie. Um, So, 25 years in the Israeli government in different national security positions in the National Security Council, MOT, and Atomic Energy Commission. Here and there, academic stints, and for the past decade with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the nuclear policy and cyber policy programs.
0: And I'm uh, George Perkovich, I've been here at the Carnegie Endowment for the last uh, 16 years. 12 years before that, I worked at a grant-making foundation that worked on international security issues, and before that, I worked for then-Senator Joe Biden. Um, Like Ali, much of my work over the years has been focused on nuclear weapons-related issues, and then we both got drawn into questions about cyber conflict about, I guess, four or five years ago.
1: You mention in the book that there was a previous volume on this subject. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what led you to this effort?
0: Yeah, the um, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, um, organized a, a volume of anthologies and uh, a friend of ours, a colleague uh, at U.S. Cyber Command um uh, Emily Goldman, uh, with the man at the Naval Postgraduate School, John Arkea, um, they they had done their uh, analogies. Uh, we looked at them and thought they were quite interesting. Um, but they themselves felt like but that the analogies were useful and people found them you know, very uh, helpful in trying to understand and think about cyber and how cyber is different or similar to other things. But they felt that they didn't have, that they they left out a lot of analogies that could be um, even more useful. And in particular, uh, we're wanting to think about and and identify and elaborate analogies that have more kind of international relevance. And so they asked us if we would consider doing, in a sense, a successor volume that would um, uh, probe some some more. Contemporary analogies. So, for example, in in our book, we we have a chapter by David Sanger of the New York Times on on drones and how that's analogous to cyber. We have a chapter by our colleague James Acton on precision guided uh, weapons and and cyber. So things like Tomah cruise missiles or or others. Um, so so those kind of more contemporary analogies weren't in the first volume. And then there were some were distant historical analogies uh, that that we found uh, could be quite interesting, uh, also that weren't in the first volume, and we've we've put them in ours. And a related rationale, I would add, was that since they produced the first volume on
2: summer analogies, which was a a much um, shorter version, it became clear to them how important the analogies have become for helping people in senior policy positions who have not thought about cyber warfare before, um, and that this would be kind of a very useful heuristic to bring them up to speed of the, kind of the kind of issues they need to think about in ways that they would find compelling because of the narrative. So it was both the international, the more comprehensive, but also the more policy, the relevant goal that produced, that helped uh, catalyze the, the second volume.
1: Yeah, I think you're touching a little bit on my next question, too. You talk about the use of analogies to explain different concepts and how they can be helpful. And I think you even gave an example of where it can be potentially misleading. How are analogies helpful to explain cyber conflict? Well,
0: some of it is it's just how human beings think and learn, right? I mean, if we if we stop ourselves at any time during the day, you know we can realize how often we're we're using analogies, basically drawing on past experience or things that one's learned to make sense of new, new data, new phenomena. Um, and so, since all we're doing is 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 articulating and making conscious how much uh, we do that, but in in the specific area of national security, um, you run into all the time, for example. Uh, uh, well, give you an example in in the debate over the nuclear deal with Iran a couple of years ago and even today, uh, it was often in invo- the Munich analogy was often invoked by 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 some antagonists in the debate. They would say this is appeasement like Neville Chamberlain appeased Hitler, uh, etc. So that so Munich was often there. Um, Opponents of uh, uh, or, or proponents of the deal often invoke Vietnam. And and so you see that in the discussion about Syria, uh, just as we speak today, there will be people who are saying, uh, you know, it would be a quagmire like Vietnam. There are other people that are saying uh, this was like what we did and regretted with Rwanda when there was a genocide. It's, it's how people think and debate and make sense of anything uh, new is by invoking the past. So we wanted to to help and identify analogies that we know are prevalent when people think about and talk about cyber, and to analyze how actually valid are they, or in what ways are these analogies misleading, and so a policymaker or journalist should be very careful about Uh, using the analogy uh, in this certain way. And to be
2: more uh, concrete here, the two most prevalent analogies that are being invoked to think about cyber, Mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor uh, on the one hand and the nuclear analogy uh, uh, on the other, Mm -hmm. those are quite prevalent, but they're partially useful and partially misleading. By invoking other analogies on the one hand and analyzing those on the other, what we wanted to show was that they do bring to the fore some interesting questions and make you think about some issues, but the answers they may lead you to think about may not be the relevant answer. So the Russians may hack American elections, but they won't do a kind of a Pearl Harbor type of thing, and that's actually more likely that you would have things on the lower end than on the higher end, a Pearl Harbor type and so on. And thinking about nuclear nuclear weapons as the most catastrophic weapons uh, also has and implies in it the reluctance to use them. That's not the case with cyber weapons. So just to show you why discussing current analogies which lead you to think certain ways that currently invoked analogies and at the same time producing others that you may with this think about that makes you lead about other types of scenarios, questions and dilemmas.
1: It's a fascinating way to look at the at the issue, so i I appreciate it. It was a very interesting read um in the first section, you examine what cyber weapons are and draw some parallels to explain them. What can the history of intelligence operations tell us about the potential uses of cyber assets?
0: Well this was a really interesting chapter i I think and it was written by the historian at, at u s cyber command and and so among the let me let me focus on the differences. I mean, he talks about, for example, you know how radio radio technology uh, was hugely uh, revolutionary for for intelligence, um, both in, in how you can gather information, but also how you can then uh, communicate uh, what you what you find and and there so there are other ways in which you know cyber to gather intelligence, builds on prior methods. But, but there's at least one huge difference that he talks about, um, and that is the way in which um, the cyber means by which a state, for example, can penetrate another country's uh, systems and gather information from them, whether it's military uh, uh, institutions, uh, banks, other things um that that it, it is great capacity. it 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 allows a state to have a, a much wider range of targets and and so forth. But what's really transformative is the same operation by which you spy through cyber means can also be a means of attacking. and that's that's fundamentally different. So if you in the old days, you know, you had, uh, you know, a spy in this agency or that agency, they could gather information, they might be able to do some kind of sabotage, but they couldn't do anything remotely as extensive in terms of, of switching from spying to attacking, as can now be done um, with with cyber means. And and I think that's a very important issue as, as we're, as countries and citizens are wrestling with with cyber, um, and that is the 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 extent to which people institutions are gathering information about all of us and about uh, governments. You could call that spying. Um, but but the the the, the question about um, whether and how they would switch to attacking and, for example, corrupting the integrity of your of your data um, is something we're just beginning to wrestle with.
2: A related issue is that in intelligence, there are generally very few rules of the game. So it's a fair play. I can spy on you, you can spy on me, at least that over the last hundred years that has become the norm. So for the US, for example, had discovered that the Chinese were spying on the Office of um, personnel management, the US intelligence professionals had said, well, too bad, but that was that was a fair thing, yeah. and the US would do the same to China. What complicates things is the same intelligence machinery wearing a different maybe organizational hat, like in the case of CyberCon versus uh, Mm -hmm. uh, NSA, would actually go ahead and do type of hacking as the Russians have done. That assumes an entirely different meaning. And here you're saying, this is not fair play. This is unacceptable. And so both of them are shrouded in secrecy, a big part of it. But one of them, you actually say, here are some rules of the game of what is unacceptable, where spying is generally tolerated. And there are some rules that if you get caught, you get slapped on the hand, the spies get exchanged,
0: and you move on. So, for example, just to belabor this, because it's a really important one, and building on what Ellie said, um, historically, there aren't examples of an intelligence operation, a spy being caught, that that leads to war, that produces conflict. Um, as I said, it's, it's assumed that states will do it. Eventually, there's an exchange of spies. They walk over a bridge and make a movie about it. Um, it's it's just part of life, um, but if you get spying on a scale that can be done through cyber, and because there are these concerns that it can be morphed into attack, there there is a worry that through miscommunication, misinterpretation, uh, you know, some of this kind of activity could be seen as a trigger to conflict.
1: I think that's a good transition to the next chapter that looks at the use of cyber capabilities as non-lethal weapons. And I was curious, um, when reading this, do you believe the the recent cyber attacks in Atlanta are an example of a potential use of this type of, type of non-lethal uh, force?
0: I th- think what happened in Atlanta and what's been happening in, in other places is... Um, it, it probably it isn't the best analogy to to the use of of force. i it it's a it's a different form of to my mind of of kind of political protest or or um, you know symbolic action. Uh, the what we were thinking of and what the chapter on the non-lethal use of force uh, has in mind, um it are uh, actually actually like, First of all, incapacitating um, weapons or military operations. Um, so, So let me back up. It's hard to imagine that an act regarding Atlanta, it's hard to imagine that an actor or whoever was behind it would have blown up City Hall in Atlanta. All right. Because that has an effect that's so dramatic. It causes death, destruction. The response that it would trigger um, would be would be fairly fairly intensive, and it's hard to imagine that the actors would have any support for what they had done. Whereas, kind of a cyber shutdown of city functions doesn't obviously harm anybody physically. Nothing blows up. It's it's more of a of a statement. Um, that that generates different kinds of responses. So so we were thinking about in in, in this context more of um, if you can shut down, for example, a a a part of a country's air force by cyber operations, rather than thinking about shooting down their planes with your own planes or with uh, with missiles. Um, how might that affect? The dynamics of war, or the likelihood of getting into conflicts uh, in the in the first place. If you think of um, um,
2: cyber weapons, uh, or, or more broadly cyber capabilities, as analogous to weapons of mass destruction, and their employment as resulting in situations like Pearl Harbor, your first instinct says, "How do we prevent their use?" If you think of them as potentially things that have a more transient, reversible and and non-harmful effects in the sense of at least bodily harm, then your first instinct says, how can we leverage them in, 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 in ways that are in between use of force and doing nothing against certain types of provocations or acute security challenges? So you are much more uh, nuanced in terms of thinking, maybe they do have potential uses that are are, are useful, legitimate, reasonable, under some circumstances
0: so, so here's another example um, that, that's closer to, to one that was mentioned in the chapter um, tear gas is an example of a non-lethal weapon right you use police and authorities use it for crowd control to disperse people well what if through cyber means you can uh, a by cutting off for example uh, social media you prevent the demonstration from happening in the first place? or by using cyber means you divert people to a different site than where the main demonstration uh, is, or you change the date. There are all sorts of ways you can imagine that are non-lethal. They don't even hurt people's eyes, uh, like tear gas does. Uh, but, But from the point of view of the state, uh, may accomplish the same thing of either preventing or breaking up a demonstration. That's an example more along the lines of what Ellie was saying, where you would kind of go from the state's point of view. Um, cyber may be a more desirable way to accomplish the objective. And indeed, from the standpoint of the opponents of the state, it may be more desirable in terms of the, the pain that uh, is visited upon them.
1: The analogy of cyber weapons to precision-guided missiles implies an ability to control these types of attacks. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yes. the The question was that the appeal of cyber weapons might be a lot greater if one would have thought about them as things that um, have a much more localized, precise effects. And the question was. Uh, whether the trend that we had seen with conventional weapons is likely to uh, um, be evident in the cyber uh, weapons as well. Um, And I think on the whole, the answer is at least for the time being that cyber uh, um, capabilities aren't able to deliver effects which could be so tailored as precision guided munitions. And that's one of the major handicaps. So maybe they're preferable in terms of use because they don't cause widespread harm. But at the same time, can if we can't predict what their second-order or third-order effect might be, we may have to think twice, or third, or three times, and so on uh, about what their implications might be. So if we give an example, if the Russians have thought that you know they might help uh, Hillary, or or they are conver- conversely help uh, Donald Trump and so on uh, somewhat or or complicate the U.S. trust uh, in the system uh, of elections, that's one story. But if they had thought that the second order effect would be dramatic U.S. uh, gearing up or ganging up on Russia and applying major sanctions and beyond, maybe they would have had second feelings about the, the impact and so on. And they couldn't. You start with it and you may not be able to calculate what the second and third order effects are. You're trying to shut down uh, electricity supply in one very small place, and then and, and then you don't understand the connectivity of the network actually brings down electricity supply for a whole city, or it lasts a lot longer than you anticipated, or it also causes electricity to fail in hospitals and things of that nature. So the, the analogy was designed to say, okay, here is a benchmark, precision-guided munitions. They've become, quite popular because they it make it possible in an affordable way to have very precise effects. So it's also more legitimate, so to speak, because there are fewer non-combatants that are being affected. Is cyber up to it? And the answer is for now, certainly not.
0: And the, another thing that comes out of that analogy that that, that I think is quite subtle, and, and, and our colleague James Acton uh, wrote this is, um, in, in both cases, in other words, if you use a, a cruise missile to attack uh, a, a electricity transmission uh, system, um, it's very important that you get what's called battle damage assessment. In other words, you're, you want to very quickly be able to assess that you hit the target, that the attack succeeded, the electricity's off, and you'd like to know, uh, you know, when it could be restored. With cyber, uh, you have e- even a greater challenge of doing battle damage assessment. So, with, with with precision precision guided weapon, you know you rely on satellites or drones or other means to take pictures of the of the thing that was hit, and you do that over time. and And we know well how to do that. With cyber, it won't be so visible whether the damage was done, uh, and and also, as Ellie said, whether the damage extended to uh, other networks or it might potentially. And it's much, in most cases, it, the target that the people whose organizations were targeted will be able to restore the function much quicker than after there's been physical destruction of a target. And if and if you're the attacker, you're the US, you've, you've used this cruise missile, you know, in some instance, but a cyber in another instance, you really want to know when your opponent is back up and running again. And that requires uh, a fairly constant capacity to be in their network from a cyber point of view. Um Which you may not be able to sustain because once they know they've been attacked, they will take measures to kick you out of there, and you may no longer be able to assess uh whether whether uh you've you've performed the mission, and so that 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 intelligence challenge is much greater with cyber
1: another technology used to to explain some of the challenges with cyber was the the chapter about drones and it speaks to the legal and ethical questions that arise with new technologies and capabilities how is the drone experience instructive to cyber capabilities
0: well in many ways and this was an interesting chapter that, that David Sanger of the New York Times wrote um, and and one of them right off the top that's that's very important is for the most part the well first of all the US and to some extent Israel have been the primary users of drones number 1 number 2 for the most part the US uh, has used drones to to kill individuals to kill human beings and that's very different from the way in which uh, any actor has used cyber uh, we're not aware of a cyber attack that has directly killed a person and and so so the distinctions there we think are 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 quite important um, there are similarities, as David uh, brings out in the article, that, you know, the idea is, again, the precision, um, the idea of similarity is that that drones, especially unarmed drones, are invaluable for intelligence gathering because they can hover a very long time over an area. And so that's why the US and many other countries uh, are investing heavily in drones, is, is to be able to gather intelligence. Well. As we talk about in the, in the intelligence chapter on cyber, um, cyber provides a great means also uh, for gathering intelligence. But it's, it's when you come to targeting uh, individuals that there's a big, uh, big difference.
2: Let me add two other issues very quickly. Number one, uh, you are uh, a falling victim to the ability to operate secretly. I mean, there is something tempting about the ability to do these as clandestine operations that are not seen by the broader public and so on to try and rely more and more on these tools to conduct operations. And so what starts very surgically and eclectically uh, and carefully reviewed missions and so on, over time becomes something you rely on more and more because uh, um, the temptation is so great that you could get away with it and you really don't pay much of a price uh, to do so, and you're not subject to much uh, public scrutiny when you employ that capability and so on, and you don't put your troops in harm's way, and those are some some of the the issues involved. And the second aspect of this is that in the UAV case, what looked very tempting was the, the, the partial illusion that you can really, really localize the effects. And what uh, transpired over time was that a lot of faulty intelligence, some of it uh, deliberately provided to you by some people who want to settle scores and so on, resulted in a lot of collateral damage and a lot of uh, non-combatants getting killed in weddings and other places and so on. Uh, bec- but but uh, you were kind of sucked into doing more and more of those until you understood what vicious dynamics you were finding yourselves into.
1: The book also looks at general questions of what cyber warfare may look like. And uh, how does the recent scandal involving Cambridge Analytica and Facebook relate to the book's examination of information warfare?
0: Well, there's a great chapter in the book by Stephen Blank on, on Russia and information warfare. And, and what's interesting is that that chapter was written before the revelations about the US ele- election and before anyone had ever heard of Cambridge Analytica. Um, but what it documented was basically that from the beginning of the Soviet Union, or at least the 1920s, um, the instruments of the state, especially the you know, the intelligence apparatus, the KGB and others, um, had a very uh, uh important and well developed strategy of information operations or information warfare. It's a combination of, of of propaganda, deceptive publication, um, political influence. And by the way, I mean the US and Western countries to varying degrees at various times in the Cold War did uh, something similar. But what Stephen's chapter uh, elaborates is the overall kind of strategy and thinking that had gone into Soviet information operations, and how that basically the same institutions, in many cases the same actors with the same philosophy, basically embraced cyber technology as they naturally would as as a new tool to use for traditional purposes. And so what we've experienced in you know, 2016, 2017, and we're experiencing now, um, is not something profoundly different in its purpose, in the actors who are conducting it, um, it, but rather it's the effectiveness because cyber techniques now allow you to operate at the speed of, of light, basically, and, and to and to hit so many targets of your information operations at exactly the same time so it becomes much more effective but it's the same actors with the same basic purposes
2: to um uh, add to what george had said um the uh, facebook story basically tells you that the name of the game is now information it's data and um The reason it's important and the the, the story that George is is focusing our attention is that information is being weaponized. It's the denial of information, the corruption of information and the the, uh, distortion of information and the ability to target it at certain audiences. So what if one had thought about cyber warfare as mainly designed to achieve physical impact, you now begin to understand that a great deal of cyber warfare already and looking ahead will actually be trying to affect cognition. It's a very different way of looking at the challenge.
0: And, and this is and this is where actually warfare may itself be the wrong analogy. It's one of the reasons we use conflict in the title and throughout the book, because when people think of warfare, they think of bloody bodies for, for good reason. Um, whereas the Soviet strategists from decades ago, but also the chief of the general staff now, General Gerasimov, they talk a whole lot about the optimal strategy is the one that achieves your objectives without a shot being fired and without anybody being killed. And and so that that really uh, brilliant military or state strategy today will mobilize, as Ellie said, information operations or cyber means to affect the way that adversaries think. to divide them, to turn them against uh, each other, to split alliances, to turn citizens against their own government, uh, to make them actually think more benignly of your own state. Um, All of these ways to affect people's uh, uh, cognition and psychology are, to to the Russian view right now, absolutely vital means of of national strategy, especially if you feel that your conventional military forces, your Air Force, your Navy, your your Army, may not be um, able to defeat the adversary's military forces, then you want to invest even more in this kind of way of politically defeating the adversary before a shot's fired.
1: So in the warfare section there's also an analogy between cyber and rail and both are described as facilitating technologies. Can you talk more about that analogy and the dilemmas that dual-use technologies present?
0: Yeah, this came out of when you're talking about rails it in particular has to do with World War 1. And there was a for a long time historians had a view that one of the reasons that World War One happened, right? Be- and, and, and many people now look back at it and say, this was just this big mistake, how could it happen? It was such a disaster. Um, but one of the arguments for why it happened was was railways. They were a new technology. They had just become prevalent in Germany, in France. and And the militaries began relying on them to mobilize Forces. And once you depended on railways to mobilize your forces, given the numbers of tracks and the need to choreograph all of uh, uh, these movements, if you thought conflict was happening, you would you would mobilize your troops and 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 rail them to the front uh, as quickly as possible. And then that would create momentum that was very hard to reverse. Historians since have basically, not debunked, but but put the issue of railways into a larger context and say, look, this isn't what caused uh, World War One. But the analogy is still there and and often invoked. So uh, Frank Gavin, an historian, uh, wrote this chapter and basically said that the the main thing to think about is that, like railways, cyber compresses the amount of time that decision makers have to avert momentum for war. So, so if World War I began after the assassination of the uh, Archduke in Sarajevo, um, and many people would say th- through the summer, uh, pressure for war built faster than the political systems could respond to and manage in ways that would avert the war. Uh, that means that, in a sense, technology compressed the time. Well, cyber arguably will compress time even more to make it that much harder for decision makers and and and, and when you have a bunch of major powers involved to kind of sort out their differences and avert war. And and so that's a a, a, a very concerning dynamic of, of the compression of time. The, the conclusion that Frank draws in the chapter is that that ultimately what caused World War I or prevented its being averted was that Europe was under-institutionalized. In other words, there there weren't institutions, there weren't frameworks, there weren't patterns of interaction amongst those states that could be mobilized for diplomacy to avert uh, the war; it was the the, the means of, of diplomatic crisis aversion were underdeveloped, and he argues that the sim that a similar thing exists in key regions today, especially regarding cyber. And we see this with the U.S. and and Russia today. Um, we're not getting into physical war, but but in a lot of ways, diplomacy uh, is is breaking down, um, and and cyber can can make that. Challenge of of building diplomatic channels in time very difficult because of the pace at which major cyber attacks could happen. Let me address your dual use aspect. If you
2: look now at um, a book which is 20 years old, it is called The Victorian Internet, which discusses how the um, how the telegraph has evolved mm-hmm. in the 19th century, and the kind of dilemmas that that technology that was initially seen as something mainly for news sharing, and subsequently for commercial application, actually became a mechanism for having an advantage over others, not just in the commercial area, or in the news gathering and passing along, or even in the family exchange, but also in the military application. So what happens is you you develop a technology, originally for purposes that look to you like they're very specific. I mean, look at the Facebook example, and then you become you realize that regardless of whether you had commercial intentions or you wanted to make the world flatter and more connected in the social aspects of the sense this could actually be weaponized or it could become another battleground so that's i think is what we're trying to get at by invoking some of these dual use technology
1: where do non state actors come into play you allude that some cyber capabilities can be easily copied. Is it possible that an attack may be conducted by an actor outside the system of international norms? Well,
0: this is perhaps the most important, or one of the most important ways in which cyber is different from other forms of conflict. Uh, it, it's profoundly important. So let's take, for example, ownership. Most of the cyber infrastructure or what we call cyberspace is owned and operated by private actors, you know, companies who, who, you know, created a lot of the systems, phone companies that, you know, own the transmission lines. Um, these, that's not the case with navies and air forces and armies, right? Governments own those and fight, uh, with each other, uh, on these, but but here, if you're talking about conflict, much of that conflict would be conducted in and through um, spaces and, and 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 in a sense uh, infrastructure that's owned by private actors and then also operated by many individual citizens. So, you know, the attacks that we know about, or when ransomware attacks happen, often right bots and other things have taken over individual citizens computers without those citizens knowing that they've in a sense been been weaponized so it's the 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 means by which conflict is fought are 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 in many ways um dispersed and privatized in ways that are totally unlike normal warfare and then that enables a totally greater range of actors to get involved so You know, if you were worried about something like Pearl Harbor, only another country had the capacity to mobilize that kind of air power. But there are all sorts of criminal networks or countries even, you know, as relatively weak as as North Korea or terrorist groups that can mobilize uh, through cyber and basically attack any any country. Add one more
2: layer to it. As the uh, Brits have been discussing this week for the first time, uh, it's not just a threat posed by these uh, non-state actors, but also fighting them has relied increasingly on cyber capabilities. And what the Brits have been talking about is how they've actually leveraged those capabilities against ISIS, because their impact being non-state actors is very localized unless they can actually spread the word. And, and the, so the means of spreading the word is heavily dependent on those cyber capabilities with are cheap, accessible, secure because of the cryptographic aspects and so on. If you can disrupt those, you complicate a great deal both the coordination of their efforts, which is dispersed locally, ge- uh, and is spatially and over time and so on, but also the appeal of their message to others who have thus far not been energized to the cause. So it's both the challenge they pose, which is cyber enabled, and the way of fighting them, which increasingly harnesses cyber tools.
1: That really um, dovetails nicely into the, the cyber defense uh, chapter, looking at active and passive defense, and the Air Force is cited, cited as an example. How does this analogy help us understand cyber defense and is cyber defense more complex because of the private sector's ownership of infrastructure?
0: I'll start, and, and Ellie will come in. Um, your last point, yes the the importance of private, privately owned and operated nodes in the system the their, their importance in defending from attack. Um, is is quite different than, for example, defending uh, airspace from attack. And so, so that's key. You really need, given the way technology and networks were designed, which wasn't with security in mind, right? Um, we need to figure out how to mobilize so many private actors, whether it's producers of technology and software or users in the corporate space or in individual space, um, to help to deny kind of entrance, entrance points uh for attackers that's very very important what the the chapter that you're referring to goes farther and it and it examines for example um through the analogy of air defense uh under what conditions is it okay to shoot down an incoming uh airliner which could Kill people, and in this case, the analogy is you know to use cyber means to take down a a computer or an infrastructure that's uh, facilitating it. And one of the questions is, well, if it's in your own network, uh, the the right to do that seems pretty clear. But if, in order to stop the attack, you need to actually through cyber means go out of your network into somebody else's. Network, which may be based in another country or owned by citizens of another country, um, what legal, ethical, and strategic issues does that raise? Um, this chapter uh, uh, explores those and and basically finds that a lot of the legal principles and ethical principles that we've developed around you know questions of air defense can be applied uh, metaphorically as you think about dealing with um with cyber defense but but ellie and and colleagues have been doing a lot of other work on this question of kind of active cyber defense
2: yeah and i think that the issue to highlight here in this context of the book is to basically say the the offensive and defensive uh, um, capabilities um, are basically complementing each other and it's very difficult to think of uh, um, things that are neatly, uh, exclusively defensive, or exclusively offensive, or even what is called the CERTs, which is the, the centers that are supposed to do cyber emergency response. If you actually have the, the resilience and the and the protection, you may have a freer hand to attack others. So what looks on the face of it like an an exclusively defensive capability, even before it's used, already may assume uh, in uh, the others uh, the eyes of others, but also into eyes. Of your own leadership is something that frees your hand to engage in offensive operations. A second aspect to the whole thing is that the um, that some of the defensive operations actually require to be in the other side's network to know what's coming. And you, we've seen a lot of recent examples of where how this has come come in handy, both to prevent attacks, but also to attribute those to figure out who was actually the one who instructed those and who was the one, be- the ones behind those who actually carried them out, and whether it's Putin that gave the instruction or somebody else and so on. So a lot of this basically says that the traditional way of saying this is purely defensive as this is purely offensive, both in terms of capability, the physical capability, as well as the use, isn't really that neatly applicable to cyber and so on and what we drew, to, to turn to the the active defense analogy in in the in the air air defense type of uh thing to say it wasn't even that simple then but it's even less simple now
1: i want to go back to the pearl harbor analogy because i think that's one that we see commonly used and you've referenced a, a couple of times um there were two i think in the book uh, looking at both the attack itself and then the aftermath and how um response was was delayed. what lessons can we take from these analogies
0: well there 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 are a number of them i mean the, the first one that people forget but I think you know is important is is ultimately that that Pearl Harbor as an attack succeeded but but Japan ended up losing the war uh in any case and one of the reasons for that that's explored in the analogy is that they the US was able to reconstitute its naval forces and and other forces um, quickly and more quickly than uh, Japan had thought. Um, The the Japanese attackers missed some of the infrastructure that was really crucial for the Navy's ability to carry on the fight. And and so there the, the question is, If you're thinking about a a cyber attack with the purpose that Japan uh, had, no matter who you are, you have to be very, very confident that in fact you understand and have intelligence on all the, the crucial targets that you want to hit, but that your cyber operation will in fact be able to hit and disable those targets, right? And which you may not actually be sure of, or you may think you can do it, but in fact, you, 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 you don't have that effect, which means also that you really need to have enduring intelligence capability to assess whether your attack worked as you thought it did. And you have to have planned right in terms of how quickly the other side could reconstitute its capabilities uh, to resume the fight. Against you, so so in many ways, Pearl Harbor is a cautionary tale for the attacker, but for the defender, which is how most people think of the analogy. So when Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta in 2012, you know, said you know the thing he's worried most about is a cyber Pearl Pearl Harbor attack on the U.S., he was thinking from you know the U.S. side the vulnerability of this big attack. He wasn't thinking about how it actually didn't work for for Japan. And and there, um, the analogy uh, suggests, again, the need and the challenge of having to uh, educate and mobilize and incentivize private actors who, in addition to the government, have to secure the space, Um, the importance of coordinating the uh, intelligence community and different sources of intelligence on attack. And and that was famously a problem with with Pearl Harbor that there was intelligence it wasn't it hadn't been analyzed and, and synthesized uh, for for the government um, adequately and so and so we know that that's the case right now with cyber and the question is you know whether the U.S. is mobilizing and and whether Congress and others are providing the resources and guidance to um, Prepare against that kind of uh, attack? I, I would only reinforce the first point that George had made, which is here was a case
2: of an audacious, technically savvy, operationally brilliant maneuver to try and dig the Japanese out of a very precarious strategic situation, in which they, in fact, ended up not only one in which they miscalculated operationally how long it would take for the US to rebound. It was a catalyzing event that made it easier for the United States to mobilize all its might to go after Japan. So the lure is there, but sometimes there are unintended consequences, and you unleash dynamics which ultimately take your situation wasn't great in the first place and make it even worse.
0: And and as we, you know, suggested in this discussion several times, you know, cyber may be tempting to pursue cyber attacks may be tempting to pursue because you think, look, I can affect so much and I can do it without bloodshed, uh, so the other side uh, is gonna be less motivated to come back at me as hard as they could, so why not do this? Now, as we explore in the book and in our other work, there may be, in fact, reasons why uh, states and and the rest of us uh, should use cyber more Uh, To project power or for defensive purposes, precisely because they don't cause damage and and kill people. On the other hand, you can be tempted to do something really audacious that actually ends up being massively um, uh, uh, miscalculated. And can produce an escalation that you didn't uh, expect at all.
2: If you now listen this week to the Russian uh, uh, trying to explain that their puzzlement over the U.S. overreaction to the um, uh, to the attack on the U.S. election electoral process and so on, they they wanted to communicate a message probably and so on. But that the fact that they would hit such a raw nerve that will come back and, and 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 come back to haunt them. I think was be a well, and, and to this day, they can't fully appreciate why in a democracy, this is such a wrong nerve.
1: Well, thank you for coming on to talk about your book. We've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, before we let you go, could you tell us about what you're working on now?
2: Yes, what we're trying to do is one uh, uh, issue is with respect to um, trying to understand the role of the private sector. And where what the government should encourage the private sector to do, and what means to do so, and what it should leave the government, the the private sector to to do, using the kind of means for risk mitigation that it's always been using, like insurance and financing as ways of, of um, affecting behavior, as well as um, uh, lawsuits and, and civil liability as type of um, uh, behavior, uh, um, a behavior modifying uh, incentive. Um, so that's one area that we're working on. And George has already mentioned that we're trying to combine this with the active defense type of discussion for the private sector. We're looking at some specific applications of cyber in conflict and in warfare, um, both in terms of targets as well as in terms of capabilities that could, uh, for example, affect the positioning, navigation, and, and timing data or financial data, and as a result, we have a and say, is it really something that you've uh, that you've asked for? We're trying to get to um, some key international players who have a uh, capacity to shape this environment and show that there is more of a common interest in trying to um, set some rules of the road for this. And I think analytically, we are also trying to kind of understand some of the uh, uh, um, some of the challenges of cyber conflict and some way of navigating yourself through it in terms of what can you hope to accomplish in dealing with cyber conflicts, as well as in in employing cyber tools uh, in those
0: scenarios.
1: That sounds like a great project. Thank you for being on the show today.
0: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
1: Understanding Cybersecurity, 14 Analogies, edited edited by George Perkovich and Ariel Levite, is available now from Georgetown University Press. You can follow the New Books Network on Twitter at New Books Network and the New Books Network National Security Channel at New Books